more Strange Stories UK here again for Series 5, Episode 8. This is going to be the first podcast for this year's Halloween 2022, and I'm calling this one The Victorian Book of Ghosts. When the Society of Psychical Research was formed in 1882, those that joined usually fell into one of two camps. There were those of a scientific frame of mind who hoped to be able to prove that the human spirit or soul survived death. Then there were those who believed in spiritualism as an a priori concept and believed that the spirit or soul survived death without the need for scientific proof. It may be fair to describe these two camps as a spectrum with the two viewpoints representing the two extremes. When the SPR was formed, uh, Henry Sedgwick was elected as its first president. This had been considered important by many, and the reason that the SPR, the Society of Psychical Research, was so respected. Sedgwick was very well connected and respected, and it was the reason that many of those with a scientific background joined the society. The spiritualist contingent were happy at first with Sidgwick. Their preferred choice of president had, didn't have the same gravitas as Henry Sidgwick enjoyed. However, there were still two distinct groupings within the society, and increasingly there were disagreements and splits after mediums championed by the spiritualists uh, began to be criticised for fraudulent behaviour and argued against the scientific methods that were being being subjected to when being investigated. To give an example of these arguments, uh, Professor William Barrett, who was largely responsible for the idea and the setting up of the Society of Psychical Research, was a convinced spiritualist. However, being based in Ireland, he was never part of the ruling clique of the Society. Barrett came to be opposed to that ruling clique, that they were that was later referred to as the Sidgwick group, who were more science based. Barrett had been investigating the Creary family, who were thought to be capable of thought transference, but they were caught cheating by SPR researchers linked to the Sidgwick group. The problem being that Barrett, who many of the Sidgwick group thought was a vain and quarrelsome man, would not accept that the cheating by the Creary family invalidated all the earlier research in which he had invested so much time back in the late 1870s. To try to stop this division within the SPR, in 1885 Henry Sidgwick resigned as president of the society after three years. He was still involved with the society. He became editor for the journal of the SPR and he was now helping his wife uh, compile information for her book, The Phantasms of the Dead. This was to be a book whereby phantasms or ghosts or spirits, whatever you want to call them, conveyed unknown information to those that they had known in life. Mrs Sidgwick had five or six cases where the evidence wasn't strong, but other cases included those where the manifestations had an objective or an unknown ap apparition who was later identified in a picture or a photograph. To be included in the book there were also traditional ghost stories where an apparition was seen by more than one person and appearing in the same locality. The popular view of the book was that it concerned the spirits of dead people. 
When Sidgwick resigned the presidency of the society, there was an announcement put out by the committee that the strength of the society was its mission to prove the existence of telepathy, or as it was known in 1882, thought transference. There had been divisions that had appeared within the ranks of the SPR between those that supported Sidgwick and the hardline spiritualists, which, as already stated, was probably one of the reasons that Sidgwick resigned in order to prevent a schism within the SPR. By 1885, there was some discontent amongst members of the SPR about the progress that had been made in the three years since the society had been formed and the actions of those few members that seemed to conduct the researches and make the decisions. It was reported that over 10,000 letters were written during 1883 in the course of the collection and verification of evidence of phenomena. The number written during 1884 wasn't much less. The work of the rank and file members was thought to have become strained at the perceived lack of progress, although they realised that the nature of the occult was difficult to quantify and it was difficult to know what success would actually look like. Nevertheless, there was criticism of the leadership of the society, which was another reason that Sidgwick stood down as president of the society. The rank and file members wanted some tangible result of their input to the material that had been collected for the Phantasm of the Living project. The Phantasm of the Dead project and the Committee of the Haunted Houses. This was the reason why the book of the Phantasm of the Living was being rushed out before all the necessary, or the necessary checking had been completed. The Phantasm of the Living was a collection of around 700 case studies of ghost sightings. The book was trying to come up with a theory that these sightings were the result of thought transference during a period of crisis. There was also criticism from some SPR members in the method of collecting evidence by expecting the public to be objective in sending their experiences, although this seems unjustified as how else would it be possible to discover these stories. There was criticism of the old cases being considered that had already been altered and added to over time when the memory of any phenomena may have been obscured with Chinese whispers and whatever. It was said that only contemporary modern cases should be considered. This was defined as cases up to 20 years old where the agents were probably still available for questioning. A letter in the Proceedings Journal for the SPR said that uh, a definite conclusion on the phenomena produced by Mr Eglinton, who was a slate writing medium, would be much more valuable than a heap of doubtful cases and even more doubtful comments that are often published in the Proceedings of the SPR. This seemed to be indicative of a certain amount of discontent by the spiritualist wing of the SPR over the amount of time and effort and space in the journal and the proceedings given over the concept of telepathy, which seemed to be the favourite topic by those that were the leadership of the SPR at the time. The SPR at that time dominated by scientists and the Sidgwick group hoping to come up with an explanation for paranormal phenomena. Frederick Myers, a friend of Sidgwick, Henry Sidgwick, and a major figure on the ruling body of the society, did not seem to be particularly a popular figure amongst the spiritualists, although he was probably closer to their way of thinking than they realised. 
Amongst those critical of the SPR leadership, there did not seem to be any topics that were agreed on by them for investigation. A common criticism was that in the cases reported on, in proceedings and in the journal, was that nearly every case reported uh, the evidence was defective or that further details were required or more cooperation was required. It was said by some in the ranks that the SPR pursued inquiries like a team of solicitors, preparing for a, a case for trial when it was known that the evidence would not satisfy those needed to be convinced. In that any on the paranormal activity or incident was unlikely to be investigated scientifically because complaints from the spiritual wing of the society over intrusive investigation into the phenomena. The tactic being used by the SPR was a numbers game to accumulate cases and more and further testimony so that a point would finally be reached when science could be persuaded. However, many in the society doubted that this approach would work as that the sufficient proof required by such doubters in the scientific community would never be obtained. There were members that wanted more investigation of mediums as these were more likely to be proved or disproved. But as Frederick Myers pointed out, that mediums had been thoroughly investigated in the past and most had been exposed as conjurers and fraudulent. It would probably be fair to say that all mediums had been found fraudulent, but Myers did not want to go that far so as not to antagonise friends and colleagues. The spiritist members of the SPR wanted the slate-writing medium Mr Eglinton to be tested, as he was thought to be genuine and he was the latest trend, the latest fad amongst the spiritualists. Frederick Mars said that he had tried to investigate Mr Eglinton for the past ten years, but nothing seemed to happen when he was being tested. He and Edmund Gurney had sat with Eglinton on ten occasions, but the phenomena had been inconclusive. Meyer suspected that Eglinton was fraudulent and that he would not try any of his tricks while being investigated by experienced SPR investigators such as Myers and Gurney. And that was the reason that nothing ever happened when Myers and Gurney were in a, in a seance with him. Eglinton would be exposed by investigators of the SPR in 1887 and as a result a number of prominent spiritualist members of the SPR resigned from the society. It was hoped that the publication and success of the book, The Phantasms of the Living, would bring the members of the SPR together and allow a focus on agreed objectives. This being partly the reason for the book being rushed out for publication before it was properly finished. There was no time given for proper reflection on the subject matter and to anticipate any possible criticism and as a result the criticisms did come. Gurney was interested in the concept of thought transference and began investigating it during the early years of the SPR, early 1880s. He was the leading investigator on this subject and as already stated the subject of thought transference was the primary objective of the SPR. The literary committee of the SPR were getting lots of reports about what was referred to as crisis appar uh, apparitions. The first report of the Literary Committee was the, in the Proceedings Periodical of December 1882. During 1882, the Literary Committee of the SPR was comprised of Barrett, Massey, Stainton Moses, Podmore, Gurney and Myers. 
so it was almost an even split between spiritualists and scientists. The article in the proceedings explained what they had been doing, collating a number of accounts that were already in print going back over the previous 200 years. This was in effect making a record of ghost stories of which uh, those involved had witnessed phenomena which were often long dead. The Literary Committee had also been more proactive in trying to find out about more contemporary cases which could be investigated by interviewing those who had witnessed events and were still able to tell their story. They were still alive. They sent out a letter asking for information on various topics to several of the leading London and provincial journals, as well as to private friends. The committee realised that a public appeal was likely to result in a number of hoaxes, but they thought they could sift through the evidence received and remove the fake stories. When the results started to come into the committee, they seemed quite confident of their achievement. They thought that the dull anonymity of the stories made them more likely to be true. To give a couple of definitions, the person receiving the thought or message or impression, whatever you want to call it, is called the percipient. The person that the message is supposed to have come from is called the agent. As an example of a case of thought transference was given by Mr. J.G. Coulimont of 2 Mountford Terrace, Bansbury Square. He was a scientific draftsman known to some members of the committee and he was the precipitant of thought, the agent being his mother-in-law. Kuhnemans gave the example whereby one morning, while he was completing some easy work that required little thought, he imagined a little wicker basket containing five eggs of specific size and colour. The image fixed in his mind. When he had lunch a couple of hours later, he recognised the eggs that had been sent by his mother-in-law at about the time that the image came to his mind. This was given as an example of the dull anonymity that is so dull, why would anybody make up such a story? They certainly differed from the usual type of ghost stories of the time. The example just given was obviously not an example of crisis apparition, which was the area of particular interest to Gurney. Nobody had got excited or got in a state of crisis over Mr. Kilimon's eggs, but this was an example of telepathy, which seemed to be very common. The results of this type and later research were building up into a head of steam that was going to be the SPR's first book to be published in a couple of volumes called Phantasms of the Living, which was to be a joint enterprise made by Edmund Gurney, Frederick Myers and Frank Podmore. The cases would concentrate on crisis apparitions. The volumes of the book The Phantasms of the Living were stories that had been collected to try to prove telepathy or thought transference by those living to other living beings. This had resulted into documented alleged sightings of apparitions. It would provide an explanation for the existence of ghosts or apparitions who have appeared during a crisis in some person's life. To give an example of a crisis apparition, um, imagine this one, Dr. Spencer T. Hall, who said that a cousin of his called Philip Spencer and his wife were unable to have children and adopted a very young daughter of a woman who was living at the town of Derby, which was about 40 miles from where Philip and his wife lived, a place called Holloway. The little girl did not remember her birth mother, calling her adopted parents father and mother. One day the little girl began to cry that there was a woman looking at her 
and according to the description given by the girl, they thought it must have been her birth mother. Only the little girl could see the apparition, and for the next half an hour the girl was very excited. Philip went to the the house of a neighbour, but the little girl still saw the woman looking at her. Then the little girl said, the apparition disappeared in a flash of fire. Later Philip and his wife heard that the birth mother had perished in a house fire about the time the girl saw the figure. Uh, The mother had lived for an hour after the fire before dying, and during that time she was sorrowing and crying to be taken to the child. The little girl did not forget the episode, and she told the story of what she saw when she was a young child in 1863. The committee put this vision down to telepathic hallucination when they were given the details in 1884, by which time Philip Spencer and his wife had died, and the girl who would now be a woman had moved and could not be traced. Such a case being an example of the problem of not being able to provide accreditation for the story. By 1883, 400 cases had been collected for inclusion in the book. These broke down into main headings of 250 neutral cases, 50 particular cases, and 100 collective cases. Experiments made by Gurney in thought transference have been published in the Proceedings and in the Journal for the Society of Psychical Research before the launch of the book. These were early attempts to prove telepathy, which was a term that was invented by Frederick Myers. The very first issue of Proceedings had given the reason for the Society of Psychical Research in July 1882 being to study the phenomena of thought reading, clairvoyance and mesmerism and the the mass of obscure phenomena commonly known as spiritualistic. The book Phantasms of the Living was to be the first publication by the Society on this or any other subject other than that had been printed in their periodicals. The first president of the SPR, Henry Sedgwick, realised that the problems would have to be overcome to convince the scientific community that telepathy existed, and he admitted that evidence had not yet been forthcoming. It was also stated that the scientific community were hostile towards studies trying to prove spiritualistic truths, and any attempts to do so were a pseudoscience. It was thought by Sidgwick that this aspect was being improved due partly to the early work completed by the SPR. In the proceedings of December 1882, the periodical, Sidgwick had written his predictions of how much opposition the SPR would receive from scientists. He thought that some not unfriendly critics were given to understand that if we only confined ourselves to thought reading and perhaps clairvoyance, and similar phenomena of mesmeramic trance, we may have their countenance, but that by taking in haunted houses, spirit wrapping and so forth, we make ourselves too absurd to be accepted. I think this neatly showed the divisions within the SPR at that time. In the journal of the SPR for November 1884, there was an article on classes of cases that were to be used in the book Phantasms of the Living. The article was written by Frederick Myers, who at that time was one of the authors of the book. Without going into too much detail, which may prove a bit tiresome, Myers wrote that when a phantasm had been perceptible to any one person, these are referred to as an individual or particular case. 
where more than one person had witnessed a phantasm. This was referred to as a collective case. Then he tried to explain other cases and different categories of cases that even he admitted were difficult to put into a certain grouping or category. There was a category labelled neutral cases, which were the most numerous, and concerned people who did not know or could not be sure that they had perceived a phantasm. For example, if they were asleep or if they saw a figure that may have been a passerby. Myers argued that phantasms occurred more easily and readily to people that when they were alone and quiet, in a reflective mood, rather than in company, and that people who suffered hallucinations were usually alone when it happened. He said that it was natural to imagine that a ghost was seen when one was lying in bed in a lonely room, than to fancy that one saw a ghost when they were sitting at dinner. In such cases, the phantasm seemed almost to await a quiet moment, generally at night for its appearance, and it seemed plausible to suppose that the impression received, perhaps at the moment of a friend's death, had gone through a period of incubation in some subconscious region of the precipitant's mental activity. Myers admitted that the post-mortem appearances were not their interest. Mrs. Eleanor Sidgwick was to write a book called The Phantasms of the Dead to cover such cases. Myers said that the material that they were interested in was apparitions of the living, including persons at the moment of death. But Myers agreed that their definitions were arbitrary. Myers then continued to break down the cases into other subcategories, which he said were necessary, as there were so many cases to consider, and an attempt was thus made to divide them into what he called simple or complex cases. An example of a simple case would be where there was a loud, inexplicable noise at the moment that somebody had died, or the old cliché of a, a clock stopping. This was referred to as time coincidence, which was the causal connection. Myers gave an example of such a case where the name of the correspondent, a man, was withheld as his mother was still alive. He said that in the autumn of 1874, an elder brother, referred to as W.M., resided in Edinburgh with his wife and family, and he went to stay for a few days with a married sister who lived in the country about 18 miles away. The man had a history of illness but was in good health when he made his visit. Two or three days after his arrival at, our, at the sister's house, he was quite unexpectedly seized late one evening with a serious illness, and within two or three hours from the first seizure he was dead. The late hour and distance from the railway station prevented any communication during that night with his household in Edinburgh. Between 11 and 12 o'clock that night, the man's mother, aged 72, but active and vigorous in body and mind, was alone in her bedroom and in the act of undressing. She occupied the room alone, and it was only sleeping apartment on the dining room floor in use that night, and all the other bedrooms in the uh, being untenanted. There were other occupied bedrooms in the floor above. The servants' accommodation was in the basement, shut off from the upper floor by a swing door at the foot of the flight of stairs and a small dog, the only other inmate of the house, slept that night, as always, in the kitchen. The mother, as said, her uh, faculties perfectly preserved, and her mind untroubled with any apprehension of evil tidings. She had read, as usual, a portion of the Bible, 
and was in the act of undressing when suddenly she was startled by the most extraordinary noise at the door of her room, which opened directly into the inner lobby. It was as if made by a person standing directly outside and close to the door, someone hastily and imperiously lashing on the door with a heavy riding whip, demanding admittance. It was loud and repeated three or four times, as if insisting on attention, with brief intervals in between. Then it ceased. The writer said that the mother was possessed of considerable coolness, but was startled. She lit a candle and went to the door. She later said that she knew there could be no one in the house seeking admission, and on opening the door there was nothing there, and nothing was disturbed. The mother thought about waking other members asleep in the house, but decided only to do so if it happened again. It was around midnight, the actual time uh, was not recorded, so it was just roughly around midnight. It wasn't until the next morning that the news arrived that her son had died at midnight, 18 miles away, uh, by road from Edinburgh. It was noted that there was nothing thought capable of making the noise, the house being made of stone and well-seasoned timber, not liable to warp or crack. The noise in question had not been heard by anybody else in the house, save the mother. Myers argued that this case, if it stood alone, could be considered the result of a dream or some other bizarre reason. But he said there were a dozen or more cases that could have been given that were very similar, and dozens of poorer cases that were ignored in their study. Myers said that the whip sound experienced by the mother was almost as common as another being the drowning man's dripping phantom, which seemed to be another incident recorded by many others. The stories which they had discovered came with a wide range of different sounds, such as bangs on walls, the rattle of gravel on windows and so on. Myers thought that perhaps such imagined sounds had been externalised in various forms by the participants own mind under the shock of telepathic impact. Myers thought that the dying man had sent a message to his mother in his moment of crisis. Frederick Mars was fond of giving labels and he referred to such experiences as morbid hallucinations, the most common of which was hearing one's own name being called. Myers made a reference to the noises that go on inside the heads of those who had moments of what he referred to as insanity hearing voices, indicating that it was a problem trying to separate these moments of insanity from telepathic messages. Myers also considered phenomena such as bangs and rappings, these being the most commonest alleged occurrences in haunted houses or spiritualist seances. Myers did not want to examine the parallel in detail, but wanted to give an example of how difficult it was to distinguish between different types of phenomena. To illustrate his arguments, a case was given by Myers of a woman informant who at that time was living with her parents. What she described as annoyance, which included sound and touch rather than visions, which made it difficult for the mother to keep servants for any length of time, or for guests to renew their visits to the rectory where they lived. Phantom feet were said to tread the passages at night. They were heard ascending the staircases. Locks turned, doors opened and closed, furniture appeared to be dragged about in unoccupied rooms. Unseen hands rustled uh, the bed curtains and moved covers and pillows. Sometimes weird, unearthly screams echoed through the house. These manifestations were not confined to the hours of night. The woman said these were just generalities. She wanted to record a particular incident. She said that her father was not the incumbent. He was only the curate in charge. The rector was a wealthy country squire of an old family. 
Although he drew nearly £1,200 a year from the living, he resided on his own estate and he never did any church duty and he left the parish entirely into the father's hands, merely paying him a friendly visit now and then. On one of these visits, when he came accompanied by his wife, uh, the mother eagerly invited the opinion of the wife about the noises which so often disturbed the rest of the house and proved a constant source of terror to the servants. The rector's wife said, I have no opinion to offer. All I know is that the house has so long enjoyed the reputation of being haunted. In the case of servants, one might suggest superstition, working on an already excited and expectant imagination. She said that this would be inapplicable to those strong-minded persons like yourselves, or those that have never heard the reports like your visitors. The wife went on to tell of one of the current legends in according to tradition when the rector of the area died strange noises like slashes of a cartwheel falling on a metal tube were heard from the landing on the front staircase this was said to have excited more merriment than credulity and the matter was soon forgotten a good many months elapsed when one autumn evening at about 9 a 9 p.m the mother was startled by the most unusual disturbance the loud lashes of a whip on some metal substance echoed through the passage down the stairs no one was to be seen anywhere, and the origin of the sound could not be traced. Two days later, the father received the tidings of the rector's sudden death. The hour and the day of this quite unexpected event coincided with a predicted supernatural warning. At the time of the rector's sudden death, he was on a visit to a country seat at least 50 miles from the rectory. He was apparently in his usual good health and spirits until a moment of seizure, which in half an hour ended fatally. Railways and telegraphs were not available, and the place was 16 miles from a coach road. Myers thought that in this case there was some unconscious anticipation on Mrs V's part, determined the nature of the sound in which the telepathic impact shaped itself. But if the evidence is to be taken as it stands, the whip sounds sound closely bound up with the strange noises which had already been heard at the rectory. It was the opinion of Frederick Myers that the sounds came from the mind of the person who heard them. They formed in the subconscious region of the mind which received the telepathic message. The sound was then externalised so the person thinks that the noises were real. Myers went on to give examples of cases that he had studied in researching the book of people lying in bed and being woken by loud noises such as the crash of broken crockery and getting up to discover that nothing had been disturbed but later discovering a near relative or friend had died and around that time the noises had been heard. Myers pondered if it was the unconscious mind alerting the conscious mind having received the mess some telep telepathic message but Mars noted that any telepathic explanation of these sounds is pressed with the serious objection that they had not yet found cases where one person had heard noises and others had not. On the other hand, there were many cases where several people had been present together and all heard the noises. Myers tries unconvincingly to explain various reasons to explain this difficulty. He was fond of making up names and labels, um, labelling different theories with names. For example, one of these categories he called incipitant symbolism. In the example given to explain incipitant 
symbolism, Myers gives the example of a mother bathing her child in a bath when she hears a crashing sound of somebody falling in the water, later discovering her brother has drowned about that time she heard the sound. The presence of the bath, the direction of the precipitant's thoughts towards water, may have enabled the telepathic impact to externalise itself, not in a mere crash or a bang, but in a splashing sound, vaguely symbolic of the actual manner of death. Myers came up with a theory of apparitions which ranged from the visible appearances seen by the eyes to appearances that came to the mind of some absent friend or relative going through a crisis which usually ended in death. Myers arranged these in a graduated series of cases from those seen by the mind to those appearances with a solid figure in three dimensions, acting in an independent manner. All of these visual phantasms were treated as projections of the precipitant's own brain and were considered hallucinations triggered by telepathic messages from a person in crisis. Myers does let slip his feelings about what he thought about uneducated people who live narrow lives, as he put it. Myers was a dreadful snob, and he described the class of people who put their children through public elementary school which were schools for the working-class children introduced in the 1870s for about seven-eighths of the population, Myers thought that the experiences of that class of person should be listened to as the criminal courts have most of their witnesses from this class. And as Myers put it, if a poor ignorant man's evidence is good enough to hang his neighbour, it's good enough for Myers to consider his experiences for a book although Myers said he would attach little weight to such cases vouched for by uneducated people only. He wanted independent cooperation by more carefully trained minds, untainted by popular superstitions. It had been a constant criticism of the SPR that people of um, unblemished character were thought incapable of deception in a subject such as psychic research, whereas the working class person was not to be trusted. This was the view published by Dr Horatio Donkin in a 19th century magazine, who argued that psychic research was without any basis in fact, and scientific inquiry in the subject was not possible. Donkin specialised in psychology and had exposed a number of fraudulent mediums. Donkin said that spiritualist craze was based on the mistaken testimonies of the middle class families at whose homes they had seances performed. These people were easily tricked as mediums had used a simple code of signals which produced results that had startled the SPR leaders. This is how the Creary sisters had fooled the leaders of the SPR after the publication of the Phantasm of the Living Book and it was to greatly undermine its reputation. More of the Creary sister scandal later. In the Proceedings Journal for April 1885, Edmund Gurney published a paper on collective hallucinations. He pointed out that although such phenomena had not been recognised by psychologists, there was a large amount of evidence for their occurrence, and they might be explained as instances of thought transference. The example that he gave would be included in the Phantasm of the Living Book, which was to be published the next year, in 1886. Gurney wondered if a subjective hallucination may set off hallucinations in others, by some sort of psychic infection or by some verbal suggestion. 
Gurney was convinced that telepathy or thought transference would be scientifically proved at some time, probably in the near future. And he argued that science did not make rapid progress and any kind of rapid progress until bottlenecks had been cleared, moving on to the next stage. Gurney expressed the hope that the SPR would stay true to its original objectives. Myers and Gurney did not agree on all aspects, differing on points of detail that would be too tedious to go into here. The points having been argued out in the proceedings of the SPR in forensic detail using the flowery language of the time. Henry Sidgwick, having sensed the opposition and criticism the book would cause, decided to give the three authors of the book parameters. Gurney, Myers and Podmore, the authors, were each given individual responsibilities, so that two reputations would not be damaged if there was a major blunder. Gurney was to be the main editor. This was because he was considered the most trustworthy. Myers was annoyed by the decision. He was to write the introduction, giving the book its historical setting and background. And Podmore was to investigate and validate the cases that were to be included. Gurney was thought to be, in today's understanding, bipolar. He had surges of energy when he worked long hours, often writing up to 60 letters a day as a coping mechanism. The central thesis of the book, Phantasms of the Living, was that crisis apparitions were hallucinations caused by telepathic messages from someone suffering a crisis. The ghosts were seen um, were hallucinations caused by the telepathic message. As already explained, these cases were broken down into different categories and subcategories. There seemed to be a rush to get the book printed by the SPR. They had been in existence now for almost four years and it was thought long overdue that they published a book on something. The book was published in October 1886, the date having been delayed some months after a fire at the printers. The president of the SPR, Balfour Stewart, addressed a meeting of the Society in April 1887 at Pall Mall in central London, congratulating the Society on publishing The Phantasms of the Living in two volumes, which he described as a great work which represented the beginnings of a preliminary discussion into the matter for spontaneous telepathy. He thought that the subjective hallucinations of same persons had been shown by the book not to be an extraordinary or extremely rare occurrence. There were some semi-positive reviews at first, but these were followed by poor reviews. Some of the criticism seemed unfair, and although the book had faults, uh, not enough recognition was given to its attempted scope. The magazine, the 19th century, that in the past had been fed stories by the SPR, was particularly harsh. They said that the cases would be more believable if they were backed up by letters sent at the time, preferably by before the event in question had actually happened. Edmund Gurney had replied to this criticism by arguing that those involved in such cases would be more likely to keep it to themselves. Otherwise, their friends and families may have thought they were losing their senses or believers in the paranormal or superstitions. Gurney also made the point to those that were giving poor reviews that why don't they comment on the bigger picture? Why don't they comment on the 700 cases that seem to defy explanation rather than the handful they find fault with? In retrospect, I would have thought that Edmund Gurney would have have to admit that it was probably best to have published a book that explained the theory and then gave a few well-researched examples rather than try to put the stories into categories and flood them with examples. 
This would have allowed comment and further examples to have been given in the future once the cases had been worked through. It seemed that the tactic to give an avalanche of cases to persuade public opinion had backfired. A lot of the criticism of the book The Phantasms of the Living came from America, which impacted on the hopeful sales on the book. Edmund Parrish was an influential psychologist and hallucination researcher. He was of the opinion that telepathy was misrepresented as being a waking hallucination of a sane person. His arguments were put into his book Hallucinations and Illusions, published in 1894, arguing that stories as told in the book were examples of a consciousness being in a dream state. The SPR had given Parrish permission to use the SPR research so that he could deconstruct it in an attempt to build his theory and his criticism was not challenged in any meaningful way by the SPR. The logician, scientist and mathematician Charles Saunders Pierce, also known as the father of pragmatism, was not impressed with the phantasm of the living book, calling the stories antidotes and basically worthless as a result of the way they've been collected and analysed. The opinion of Pierce carried a lot of influence in America and it would have affected the sales of the book, in America. Other American critics argue that there were other explanations and reasons for stories, not least faults of the memory as illustrated by Judge Hornby, which I will shortly explain. Misremembering, illusions of the senses, exaggeration, daydreaming and so on, not to mention hoaxes and deceit. The stories relied upon the memory of those giving the stories and the memory can be unreliable, especially over time. Other criticism in America came from the church groups, which, to be fair, complained about most things. Henry Sidgwick was the wise head of the SPR. He had sensed the opposition and criticism that the book would cause. Problems had been evident before the book was actually published. During August 1885, Edmund Gurney had to make retractions from some cases that had been published in the preceding journal as evidence of for the existence of telepathy. Several cases had been inaccurately reported. Gurney said that the study of telepathy was in part a learning process and should be expected that there would be some setbacks, and in some cases not sufficient allowance was made for those that were just visual hallucinations caused by anxiety. Gurney had to explain away two cases where the facts were misreported and greatly exaggerated by the informants. The first case was that of Sir E. Hornby, for which Gurney blamed himself for not checking the Chinese newspapers to verify facts. This case was first printed in the proceedings of May 1884, although it no longer seems to be in these uh, publications, which shows that the SPR were quite quick to redact the stories. So the brief story is that Edmund Hornby was a senior judge of the Supreme Consular Court of China, so presumably an influential and reliable witness. Hornby had been in the habit of allowing journalists to visit him when he was in Shanghai to learn of his judgments so they could publish them in the next day's newspaper. The story went that after the judge had retired for bed one night, a reporter appeared at his bedside at about 1.20am asking for a judgment. After some conversation where the judge told the figure how annoyed he was being disturbed in bed, the figure told him this would be the last time he and the judge would meet. It was later explained that the figure had been an apparition of a reporter that the judge had dealings with in the past. The judge had given him the information he asked for just to be rid of him. 
Hormi's wife had also been awoken by the conversation. On arriving at court in the morning, Judge Hornby was informed that the reporter had been found dead in his own house at 1.30am that morning over a mile away. When Hornby had got home, he and his wife compared notes and worked out that the reporter had appeared to Hornby at around the time he was discovered dead. When the story was published in proceedings, Hornby said that he was sure he had not dreamt it. Hornby had also reported the story to the magazine The Nineteenth Century, who published it in July 1884. A copy of that magazine made its way to Shanghai, where it was read by Frederick Balfour, the editor of the North China News, amongst other newspapers. He knew both Edmund Hornby and the reporter, who was called Mr Lang, who had been found dead. Balfour wrote to the Nineteenth Century magazine to inform them that the story was false. Hornby was not married at the time that Lang had died, and Lang had died between 8am and 9am on a day three months before Hornby said the apparition visited him. After Frederick Balfour's letter was published, Henry Sidgwick wrote in his diary that psychic research was growing dark and difficult, and that the evidence for telepathy had been shaken by the Hornby case. Sidgwick had reported to a friend that, in his opinion, the people whose word he would trust without reservation were tending to give unsatisfactory evidence, and he was not surprised that the evidence was breaking down under scrutiny. I suppose Sedgwick would have thought that the word of a judge could have been trusted, this possibly being part of the reason that Sidgwick was shortly to resign from the position as president of the SPR. When Hornby was contacted by the SPR, he said his memory must have played him the most extraordinary trick. This being after the newspapers in China confirmed that Balfour had been correct and the judge's story had been nonsense. The SPR withdrew the article and the, uh, from proceedings, which explains why it can't be found today. The other case which Gurney was forced to withdraw was the case of Mr. somebody known as Mr. XZ, that had been published in the Proceedings of 1882 by the Committee of the Haunted Houses. What made it so difficult for the SPR was that the person who gave them the story was totally trusted by the SPR. The story was told to Frank Podmore, who'd carried out checks on the story. The name of the person who had supplied the story to the SPR was not revealed, but he had been totally trusted by the hierarchy of the SPR. The story seems so contrived that it's difficult to believe that the investigators were taken in. Those on the Haunted House Committee of the SPR were William Barrett, Mr Keep, Mr Massey, Mr Wedgwood, Frank Podmore and Mr Peace. The story is preceded by the statement that the story is fully trusted and there could be no question of the informant's integrity. He is a gentleman of considerable intellectual distinction and he gave the interview to Frank Podmore of the SPR. Podmore wrote up the story, and it was checked and confirmed by the gentleman who allowed the story to be published as long as his name was not given or the address of his house. Edmund Gurney was retracting the story, as he would have expected the Committee of Haunted Houses to have checked out the story before publication. But no checks had been made by Frank Podmore. The story was that Mr XZ went to reside in a large old house Sorry, I had a bit of coughing fit then. Anyway, um, where were we? Mr XZ went to reside in a large old house near what was thought to be Cambridge. Without getting too far into the story, in 1852, Mr XZ went to his bedroom 
where there was a bright light, like an electric light, and the figure of an old man with a hideous evil face. On making inquiries later, he learnt that the grandfather of the present owner had strangled his wife and cut his own throat at the very spot where Mr. XZ had seen the figure. There were another, a number of other clichés attached to the story which went on in the telling, such as Mr. XZ calling at the London address of his landlord and seeing a portrait of the figure that he had seen, although a number of local people testified that the story was true. However, on checking parish records, the date of deaths did not match the story, and it became clear that the story was a fabrication. What made it difficult to bear was that this informant was such a trusted witness. These checks were made after publication, giving the opponents of the SPR an opportunity to point out the amateur nature of the society, who seemed so easily taken in by false stories. Another major criticism of the book was that it endorsed the tests of the Creary sisters as evidence of telepathy. This was a major plank in the arguments made by Gurney in his investigations into telepathy and was featured heavily in the book. Within the year of the book being published in 1887, the Creary sisters had been discovered to have used a code to transmit messages to each other rather than by any telepathic means. The first issue of Proceedings had a long article to illustrate the experiments on thought transference being carried out by, by the Society on the Creary sisters. Telepathic experiments had always been criticised for lack of proper controls and repeatability, and 140 years since these early experiments, telepathy has never been scientifically proved. The Creary sisters' case was damaging to Gurney, as he claimed that the experiments he had conducted on them had proved that telepathy was a fact in nature, and so much stress had been placed on this series of experiments, with Gurney stating that his conviction for the existence of thought transference was due to the experiments he had carried out with the Creary sisters. Mr Creary, the father of the sisters, had been elected as an associate of the SPR in the first year of his, ex of his ex existence. He resigned from the society after the deception was discovered. It was the Creary sisters' case that had been the catalyst for the SPR being formed in the first place. Trevor Hall, the author, um, later gave an answer to the question, how were Myers, Barrett and Gurney so taken in by the Creary sisters? Trevor Hall argued that, firstly, the leaders of the SPR were rendered credulous to a degree almost impossible to understand by their overwhelming desire to believe in the concept of thought transference. They were so convinced that it was a thing that they could barely not consider the fact that it didn't exist. Secondly, they were ignorant of the elementary principles of conjuring. Hall being something of an expert in this field, the SPR later tightened up their investigations after being advised by various conjurers. And thirdly, the point already being made, that if a story, no matter how improbable, was told by a person of social standing and with an unblemished character, a churchman or judge for example, his word would be taken and accepted without the need for checking the background facts. Hall gave an example of the blind, unquestioning belief of a gentleman's word could have on the SPR. The case that he gave was known as the Theobald case. The Theobald case is interesting on a couple of levels. First, a brief explanation. Moral Theobald was a chartered accountant, and he was on the first council of the SPR and its first secretary, and he was a well-known advocate of spiritualism. 
The story was told of how the Theobald household had employed a cook called Mary, who was also a physical medium. It was alleged that rather than get up early, she would call on the spirits to light the fires and boil the water in helping the domestic work of the house. Also, spirit writings appeared all over the house. Theobald also wrote to the journal and had published in October 1885 accounts of how his daughter was unable to move a bath from the top floor of the building. They were awaiting a cabman to bring it down. In the house at the time there was the cook, the medium cook, called Mary. The two women claimed to have seen the bath making its own way down the stairs. The women claimed that the spirits, or something, had taken the heavy bags down the stairs. Theobald said that it was true that they only, he only had the word of his daughter and Mary the cook, but the phenomena would probably not have taken place if a watcher, by which I presume he means an investigator for the SPR, was there. Theobald claimed that he often spoke to the spirits through Mary and through direct writings whereby spirits wrote messages around the house on walls and ceilings. Theobald described the events going on in his house in a series of letters to the spiritualist magazine Light in 1884, and then he published a book on the phenomena called Workers in the Home Circle in 1887. Theobald believed entirely of the events he described and argued that those that did not believe him didn't have the necessary faith to be able to believe. Although Theobald said he would like the matter investigated, he explained that as an experienced spiritualist, he recorded phenomena at his home daily, and it did not need a seance for phenomena to manifest itself. He asked the question of how could the SPR investigate without having investigators billeted at the house, which he would find most distasteful to both him and his family. And speaking from his experience, it would be destructive of the phenomena, meaning there wouldn't be any spiritual activity if investigators of the SPR were present. There were two SPR's investigations into the Theobald case, and the investigators were never able to witness the actual performance of various phenomena, and found many circumstances that suggested human origin in the spirit writings. The letters were regularly formed and of normal size when they appeared in places accessible to persons of ordinary stature, but became straggling and irregular in high places, as if they had been written with a broomstick with a pencil attached. The findings of the two investigators were strongly criticised in the spiritualist magazine, Light, uh, in January, February and March 1885. The editor of Light concluded that the investigations were incomplete and hasty, and that fraud could not be explained the extraordinary varied phenomena of the Theobald house. Theobald himself believed mischievous and fraudulent spirits had sport the tests when the SPR were investigating. Theobald was representative of the hardline spiritualist movement within the SPR and seemed content to cause some friction with the Sidgwick faction of the SPR. He quite determined to amplify the spiritualist cause within the society, illustrating the discontent of those of a spiritualist way of thinking, and that they were not given sufficient time and effort in investigation the cases that they were interested in. I would have thought that even the spiritualist members would have thought that the Theobald case was unbelievable, but they were saying, investigate the case, and if it's false, then so be it, but better to investigate such a case and have a definite conclusion 
rather than investigate theories that have been made up by Myers that can never be proved or disproved, or sending people to India to investigate Indian theophists who claim to have evidence of telepathic communication. This is true, but it's another story that which we obviously won't consider here. For some members of the SPR, like the Sidgwick group within the SPR, they encouraged accurate observation and objectivity, and the proceedings of the society gave a platform research findings to be discussed. The spiritualist magazines, such as the uh, Spiritualists, Two Worlds, Medium and Daybreak, being all news, popular newspapers, rightly saw the SPR as a threat. There was a suggestion by non-spiritualists that many hallucinations by the insane had been claimed as part of the spiritualist and occult world, and that spiritualism was a safe space for the neurotic to be themselves and freely express themselves, knowing that they would be sympathetically appreciated. Spiritualism was a safety valve for mild forms of insanity and those that suffered from delusions. Although it was an extraordinary book, the phantasm of the living was considered something of a failure. The 700 examples or ghost stories that were given in the book lacked accreditation and the book caused the Society of Psychical Research to lose some credibility. Today reading the book it's a tedious read. Lots of similar stories back to back in sections of the book where they've been put into different various categories. Read by themselves the stories have an interest but en masse they're difficult to comprehend. The book was a product of its time. It has not lasted the, uh, the test of time. It was Edmund Gurney who shouldered most of the blame for the criticism, although it was thought that Frank Podmore's task was to check out the stories and validate the documentation, although this seemed to be an impossible task. Gurney would have thought uh, would have to take some responsibility for not checking up on Podmore and being responsible for the book overall. It's not known the state of Gurney's health during the months before publication, whether or not he was in a depressive state and able to function normally. It was not that Edmund Gurney had not been given warning signals. He had bad experiences already with stories that had not been properly checked. These were the cases that had been questioned after they had been published in the proceedings. Mrs. Eleanor Sidgwick brought out a revised edition in 18, sorry, 1918, dropping some of the material, reducing the number of incidents from 700 to 186. 36 years after The Phantasm of the Living was published, Mrs. Sidgwick published the list of similar stories that have been sent to the SPR since 1886, called Phantasms of the Dead. Most of these stories have been published in the Journal of Proceedings at various times. Some of the stories have been published in Frank Podmore's book, Apparitions and Thought Transference, from 1894, or in Meyer's book, Human Personality and the Survival of Bodily Death. These were published in the Proceedings of 33 Periodicals from, 19, uh, from 1923, and they proved just as tiresome to read as those published by Gurney in 1886. It wasn't that the individual stories were not interesting, but the sheer number of them being so similar did not give a pleasant reading experience. Frederick Myers had been co-author and published for the project of the uh, Phantasm of the Living to be published. His main interest was proving the human soul survives bodily death. He would eventually publish Human Personality and its survival of bodily death a year after his own death. Most of the research that Myers had undertaken during his time at the SPR and before was to attempt to find proof of the survival of the soul, 
which is also partly Gurney's motivation. This would explain the obsession with mediums, automatic writing and telepathy, along with other related subjects. The Myers book received mixed reviews. The book argues that there is a part of the human subconscious mind that can project images of hidden thoughts, and this could account for paranormal events. Myers' beliefs of what he called meta-ethereal world, which was a world of dreams, were different from those of Edmund Gurney, who argued that the apparitions were the results of telepathic hallucinations. The book The Phantasm of the Living was influenced by both viewpoints. Well, then I think that will do for Phantasms of the Living. I know it won't be a podcast for everybody. Um, anyway, thank you for downloading and listening, and thank you for Damselfly for the background music. And until next time, I will say goodbye. Thank you.